Welcome to the World Changing Women podcast, our weekly conversation featuring women who are doing just that, changing the world in their way, to make it a better place for all of us to thrive in. I'm your host, Kate Byrne, president of SOCAP Global, and today we're sitting down with author and co-founder of the Omega Institute, Elizabeth Lesser. Through her work, be it in the books she writes or the wellness she empowers through the Institute, Elizabeth fuels our creativity and social change. Plus, my personal favorite and gold star moment is she's one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, a collection of 100 leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. This morning, we're going to dive into her latest creation, Cassandra Speaks. When women are the storytellers, the story changes. So true, so true. Elizabeth, I've been looking forward to this day and so excited to have this conversation with you. Welcome, welcome to World Changing Women podcast. Oh, thank you for being here. I've been looking forward also. So yeah, here we are. Great. So listen, before we meet Cassandra, I'd like to start a little bit about you and your journey up to this point. So what got you here? And, and from founder of the Omega Institute to author, what was that path like? I always have been a writer. You know, I've been a writer. I was a writer before I co-founded Omega, even though I was in my early 20s then. I've just, oh, I, I, I kind of can't think unless I'm writing, but I never really knew I would write books. What happened was, uh, you know, Omega has grown, it grew very fast. We started it in the late 1970s, just, just a bunch of kids with an idea. We never knew it was going to become such a large... Uh, institution, uh, an institution of learning. I, I, you know, people often say to me, how did you create this as if when we created it 40 years ago, it was this big thing. No, it started as a very small thing. And I had the role of, I had many roles, but one of my roles was writing our annual catalog. And as we grew, the catalog became a 150-page book, really, about so much thought leadership in the world because we're a holistic learning organization. So I was taking the work of these thinkers, whether they were spiritual teachers or social change agents or feminists or environmental leaders or artists, I was taking their work and having to compress it down into little course descriptions. And I really, I didn't realize how much I was learning about a compressing understanding into an un- understandable tidbit for the masses. But it really was my education in writing. And uh, my first book actually was an overview of everything that I had been learning over 20 years, our first 20 years at Omega. I thought, wow, I have a really good bullshit detector now on like what works for your health, for your growth, for your psychological growth. I'm going to like distill it into a book, kind of a shortcut. I called it uh, The Seeker's Guide. And so that's how I got from running an organization to being a writer. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's interesting. I call that pretzeling. You yeah. know, that, that notion of where you're, to your point, you're compressing and you're really getting tiny, tiny, tiny. So with that being said, who, who's an inspiration to you? I mean, was there a person that all of a sudden you just decided, hey, I've been reading this book and I've been working with this. I'm going to go ahead and take a, take a chance to write a book because I know writing a book is literally akin to having a child. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 akin to that. And uh, the labor, fortunately for most of us women, labors you know everywhere from like ten to forty hours. But writing a book is a freaking long labor. <laughs> Um, and actually, I was a midwife. That was my first job in life. So um, it's an apt metaphor for me because I know a lot about labor um, and delivery. <laughs> um, but who inspires me? You know, it's hard for me to say because I've been around so many inspiring people. I've been like a kid in a candy shop. Right. Uh, since I'm a seeker, let's call it, there's right. just been so many. But I'll tell you, after being exposed to so many quote-unquote great masters in so many disciplines, it's regular people who inspire me the most. And since this new book I have written is called Cassandra Speaks, and we'll get into who Cassandra was, but I'm always looking for the Cassandras of the world, the people, and mostly the women who are bravely speaking truth to power. Um, a recent one is this woman named Arisi Unda. She's Mexican, and she is the woman in Mexico who decided several months ago that she was going to call a nationwide strike of all women because when we stop, she says, the world stops. And there's such a a lack of care and respect for women in Mexico at the moment. So many missing women, murdered women, raped women, with no repercussions for the men who are doing it. So she decided to show Mexico, if you kill all of us, or scare all of us, the country won't work. So she called a women's strike. Millions of women in every city in Mexico uh, didn't go to work that day. So her, she's, she's someone who inspires me. And there's so many women like that, that inspire me. You know, I think that's a really important part because it, what in my travels, what has come up so often is people asking, well, I'm just me. What good can right. I do? Oh my gosh. You can do so much good across so many different ways. And that's a, that's a terrific And it's a, a problem with our celebrity culture is that we begin to think, oh, they're the ones who can do it. When in reality, that's never who does it. You know, Miss Rosa Parks was not a known name. She was just someone coming home from work and didn't get out of her seat. We all can do that. And we actually are the ones who can do it. That's actually a really great question. I think that I would ask and challenge the audience with is thinking about what seat are you going to be taking, right? And what are you going to be taking a stand on and, and make, making a point? So, so let's learn a little bit about this, Cassandra. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about, well, first I'd love to get a little bit deeper dive into the book's architecture because I liked how you did that. Hmm. Um, and, then, and then let's drive in a little bit more about Cassandra specifically. Okay. Um, I divide the book into three parts. The first one is called Origin Stories. I, um, besides being a seeker and a feminist, I love history. And I'm very aware, like um, the, the feminist historian, I don't know why they call her a feminist historian, she's just a historian, Sally Roche-Wagner says, oh. it's not 
History isn't what happened, it's who tells the story. So I just wanted to go back and look into all of these old stories. What are they, these stories that stick to us, stick to the culture, and still stick to us, the old, old stories, the origin stories, Adam and Eve, Cassandra, Pandora, long line of literature that we still ask all of our students to read. Who told those stories? Why did they tell those stories? And how are they still affecting us? So Cassandra is one of those stories, and I'll tell you her story in a minute. And the second part of the book is called Power Stories, because power is also a story we've told. What is power? Who gets to have it? How do you wield it? Is there a way to do power differently than the way these old texts, Machiavelli, the prince, and Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and all of these books that we may not even know about, but actually map out the most destructive idea of what power is. So I go into those stories and, and, and talk about other ways of doing power. And the third part is called Brave New Endings, A Toolbox for Interchange. And I, I really do believe that um, the way we change the world it has a lot to do with the way we change ourselves and our sense of who we are and our confidence, our strength, our belief in our instincts um, and undoing years of silencing. Agreed in so many, across so many different fronts. Okay, so why do you call the book Cassandra Speaks and who was Cassandra? Well, Cassandra was a Greek mortal woman. And remember, I just always need to say this, this is a story that someone made up. Okay. <laughs> right. Someone made this story up. Right. And then it stuck to us. So Cassandra was a mortal princess. She was the daughter of King Priam, uh, the king of Troy, which was uh, the enemy of Greece. And you know all about the Trojan War and, and Greek and Trojan heroes battling each other. So Cassandra was the daughter, beautiful, and the most desired princess in all the land. Everyone was wooing her, including the gods. Zeus, king of the gods, wanted her, Apollo, his son. And Apollo offered her a gift in the wooing process. And he said, I will give you the gift of clairvoyance. You will be able to tell the future. You'll be able to see into the future and therefore affect the future. And Cassandra wanted that. I, I'd like that. Um, and he neglected to say that part of the deal was then he'd have sex with her. Um, so she accepted the gift. And then he tried to have sex with her. And she refused him. And he was furious. And instead of just taking back the gift and walking away, he said, you can keep that gift. But now no one will believe you. You will know the future, you will tell the future, but no one will believe what you say. And so sure enough, she saw everything. She saw what would happen if Greece and Troy went to war. She saw all of her family would die. She saw the, her city in the fiery ruins. She saw the end of years of leadership in their area. She saw everything, she told it, she called it out, but no one believed her. They called her hysterical and crazy. And eventually she was driven mad. 
So as I was writing the book, I didn't know what I was calling it. I had it divided into those sections, but for me, a title is, is often is one of the last things I come up with. And as I was writing it, the Me Too movement was really blossoming. Remember back yes. then when that yep. was what we were caring about and God help us will again soon. Um, and, uh, in particular, I was watching the televised um, trial of the girls who had accused Dr. Larry Nasser of mm -hmm. sexually molesting them when he was the doctor for the uh, Olympic gymnasts, but also soccer players, girl baseball players, all sorts of girls. He was the go-to doctor. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of girls over 25 years had complained that he was molesting them and no one believed them. Not their mothers and fathers, not their coaches, not the US Olympic Committee, until finally enough happened and, and a few of the Olympians, the more recent Olympians, as they were gaining more credibility as women athletes, they accused him. And one of the most amazing things about that trial is that the judge was a woman, Judge Aquilina. If you want to be inspired, watch that trial, because she changed the, the rules of trial law. She allowed a hundred of those girls, and by now women, to testify, and they, she made Dr. Nasser sit there and listen to them, because she said, part of your wounding has been no one listened to you or believed you, and therefore you didn't believe yourself, and you've been slightly driven mad. And the girls were so grateful and their testimony was so electrifying to me. And I thought, yeah, when women get to tell our stories and are listened to and believed and our, and our values and what we think is important is validated, the story changes. So I began to see us, those of women who want to tell a new story as Cassandra's. And that's why I named it Cassandra Speaks. So I have a follow-up to that, just with regards to that trial and the role that these poor young women were trying to speak their truth and their parents didn't listen. That's frustrating. Obviously, not only I mean to them, but but to me, in the sense that it almost makes the the adults additionally complicit, even their even their mom. Well, we're all complicit in patriarchy. Not my favorite word. Mm -hmm. I don't like patriarchy because it's been loaded with this blameful attitude: all men wrong, all women right. I just I don't subscribe to that at all. Right. We all have been wounded by distorted ideas of what it means to be fully human. Men are trapped by it, women are trapped by it. We're cut off from our authenticity because women feel we have to be like this, men feel they have to be like that. But it's a powerful um, force, patriarchy, I'm gonna call it that because I don't have a better word. Mm -hmm. And so um, if the only way for those girls to do the sports they loved that, that was their calling, their meaningfulness, that, that gave their, their juice. And the parents were supporting those girls and they wanted them to, to thrive and to be happy. 
and they're caught in a system. I mean, we're all caught in these systems. And some of the parents did listen to the girls. So I don't want to throw everybody under the bus there. But some were, were just trying to go along to go along. And we all do that. I mean, I've done it. I've done it in my work where I know I'm either not supporting a fellow woman or I'm allowing myself to be paid less just because I need the job or all the things we do. Right. The context that you find yourself in the situation. Yeah. Well, that's actually um, a terrific lead in, I think. Um, I want to just take a moment to, uh, to quote a little bit. So you write that for most of human history, the storytellers and scribes have been men. And that if women have been equally listened to, believed, respected, then the stories that stick to us about women and men, power and war, sex and love, will they be different? So let's go back to our culture's first story, Adam and Eve. What story would Eve have told about picking the apples, leaving the garden? How would that story have been different? Like, What lessons would, would humanity have learned from her story? Oh, poor Eve. You know, there's so many heroes in the Bible. Let's look at like Moses and Job and Noah and Jesus, all of these men, um, heroic figures, had to do something similar. They all had to leave home in order to grow up. They had to face lots of tests. And their desire was to be wise, to be aligned with spirit, to lead. And they all rose into those through trials and tests and not all of them did great things and they were you know they were uh shot down and then they got up I mean, look at the jesus story this is the hero's journey eve, eve was the only protagonist in the bible in who uh was punished for the exact same urge to um become her full self and so if you go back, and many biblical scholars and translators have gone back into the Eve stories, there's early, early different interpretations of it. First of all, God says, if ye eat of the tree of knowledge, surely ye shall die. God says this accordingly. And then the snake who in early times, biblical times, was actually the purveyor of wisdom. Snakes meant wisdom in the old days, said, no, that's not what God meant. He meant, surely the child part of you will die. You will become wise. You will grow up. And Eve um, wanted to be wise. Here was a tree that if she ate of it, she'd be, I look at Eve as the first grown-up. Adam was in the garden. It was all nice. It was all very, it was almost like a childlike existence. There was nothing bad happening. He was being taken care of by God the Father. Everything was just easy. That's childhood. And then God made him a helpmate, Eve. And um, <clears throat> through Eve's direction, they grew up. They had to leave home. They had to face the fact that life was hard, that there was life after the garden and it was gonna be hard. And she was like, come on, dude, grow up. We're leaving the garden and we're gonna- That's so familiar. 
<laughs> we're going to take responsibility for our own life here. That's the way I read the Eve story. And if, and if Eve, who also was not a real person, it's a story told by men. Um, you know, so many of the old stories have the exact same storyline. Pandora is another example. She was the first Greek woman in the Greek mythology, and she disobeyed. She opened that box. There was no evil for humans before she opened it, and then all the evil came out. There are many, many stories that have the same line. Second born, first to sin. That is the curse women have carried with us. You may say, who cares? I don't believe in that. It has stuck to us. Exactly. It has. No matter what anybody says, I completely agree with you. So let's roll into, so, you know, you cite many examples um, in literature myth that associate rape and pillage, right? And then we're seeing it as in the case that you just cited earlier with regards to Mexico and the fact that there's this brute force that has to take place with this hero's journey, that there has to be some form of, I'm going to say, vivid, horrific, physical, the mental internal isn't enough. It has to be, you have to be decimated. How do these heroes still affect us? Well, I'm going to apply some modern uh, psychological studies to your question. And so for years, um, I think since, like, I think it was like in 1938, there was a study done on how do humans relate to stress? What happens to a human being under stress? Human being equals man because they only did any of those tests on men. So yes, what sadly. is the reaction both uh, behaviorally and measuring uh, hormones and biochemical reactions to stress. And they came up with that um, fight or flight. All humans under stress either fight or flee. Mm -hmm. And that's what we all think. We all say fight or flight. Well, um, a woman from UCLA, I'm gonna forget her name now, did studies in uh, the 1990s What's her name? I really should remember her name. Sorry. That's okay. Um, that she decided to test women through the, the same battery of tests. Mm -hmm. And she discovered, and it's really, it's slowly entering the vernacular of psychology now, that women don't react mostly with fight or flight. They react with tend and befriend. That's, oh. the, that's the line she came up with tend and befriend that and she did these tests not just on human mammals but on um, all sorts of animals too and watching them in the wild and testing them in the lab that uh, women's reaction to stress not all the time not all women not all men but in general women's reaction to stress is more tend the flock tend the children tend people because we have to save them and even more than that this idea of befriending like oh there's an adversary is there some way we could work this out and create circles of inclusion and um so these great mythological stories where the hero's journey is all about fight or flight odysseus goes out into the world you know homer the first hero's journey 
all the guy is doing is killing people or fleeing monsters. There's nothing like, hey, let's talk this out. Let's figure this out. Why do you feel this way? How can I learn your ways? It's just about attack or retreat. And so many of the great books, whether it's Moby Dick or War and Peace, and, and if you look at the, the books that high school students all still have to read, they are primarily fight and flight hero journeys tales. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but if that's the only diet we read and eat and see the movies of and the, the idea of superheroes and battle, if that's all, then that's what we think it means to be human. And when we enter the workplace as women, we're like, I, I guess I better learn how to but fight I better. So. I better, because, and, and actually, we should, because then we never get ahead. But it's a terrible catch-22 we're in, because then we leave the best of who we are behind. And like Nietzsche says, be careful when fighting monsters that you don't become one. And then we just become it. Yeah, I had a dear friend from West Virginia, and she used to say, Katie, just make sure, you know, when you swim with the alligators, you don't become one. Yeah. And I definitely, it's something that has stuck with me, especially as I've gone through uh, just the workplace and coming into positions of power and dealing with my own power and, and what that looks like and how that's experienced. Mm -hmm. uh, so speaking of that, let's talk a little bit more about power. So you say, you know, no woman man is immune to the allure of the old power story. I, I refer to this as taking the owl out of power. So it's the only story like that's, that. right? It's, it's the only story that's been told about power. So within each of us is our own sort of mini Machiavelli. It takes work to recognize that part of the self and to tame it. Egocentricity is genderless. I love that because I think so often we think when I get into that position, I'm not going to succumb to that. So what do you, when you're saying that phrase, doing power differently, what does that look like? Or give a, you know, feather up a couple of, of pictures of what that can look mm -hmm. like or, or things to think about, you know, tapping into that, that curiosity that I think the tend and befriend within us actually addresses. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of um, compassion for myself and other women leaders if we can't answer that question right away because we're just trying, we're just beginning to try to imagine what that would be like. Um, it, it's, it's not a zero-sum game here where like everything that's happened up until now is bad and terrible and we'll get rid of that and then we're going to replace it with some sort of amazing all-female, you know, love and unicorns, unicorns and rainbows, you know. Exactly. So, so it's a hard question to answer. And in the beginning, I was always kind of like faulting myself for not saying women will lead like this. Now, of course, there you probably know better than I do. There are lots and lots of studies done on how women lead when given a chance to lead in their own image. Um, but recently I've been paying a lot of attention to these women who are running the countries where the COVID, uh, where 
COVID-19 has been actually everything from eradicated to just lessened. And I've been watching Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand and Angela Merkel and mm -hmm. the heads of Taiwan and Finland and other countries. There's five or six of them that have done so well with bringing their constituencies, entire nations together in this befriended belonging community um, and using um, the kind of communication that doesn't make some people bad and wrong and other people's good, but a way of, of speaking that includes. And the thing that I heard Jacinda Arden say that really struck me was, I don't know how to deal with this. So she admitted, hey, everybody, this is, we are in new territory. I want as many experts to pile on all the information you can. I'm going to look everywhere. I'm going to look in other countries. I'm going to look to science. I'm going to look to, to um, leaders here. I'm going to look to parents. I'm going to cast a wide net and then I'm going to filter it as the authority, but I'm going to try to include as many of you as possible. So, and that's what a lot of these women have done. This lack of hubris that I know, I'm not going to ask for help. I don't ask for directions. I know it's a, um, and, and this is such dangerous territory because I don't want to make it sound like women leaders are saintly or egoless, but what the sticky ego thing of having to prove your masculinity is just not there in many women. It's, it's like, I don't want to prove that I, I'm number one. I want to serve everybody. So I do think that if women once into the realms of power, and it's not just big business, it's a school board, it's your family, um, can somehow trust the instinct in here. And somehow, and that's hard. That is hard. It's been beaten out of us. It's been beaten out of men, but it's been beaten out of women too. We think it's this, you know, they call it in business studies, the soft power. Right, the soft skills. The soft skills. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and okay, I don't think they're soft. I think to be vulnerable, to be communicative, to be create circles of belonging, that is absolute hard, tough, meaningful, important ways of leading. So until we start valuing what we have inside of us and, and standing for it, um, it's, it's just invalidated. Agree. You know, it's, <clears throat> I've started using, it makes me think your point about the lack of hubris. Um, I call it sort of situational humility, where we realize, oh my gosh, there is, this problem is way too big for me, let alone my team, my company, my sector, my community. We, we really need to acknowledge that we need to reach out and branch out and get help. And I think, uh, I think women, to your point, again, I go back to the tend and befriend. I think that's really true. There just comes a reality check where you're like, okay, at the end of the day, it's more important that we heal the, the group, the community, than one person's mm -hmm. you know, climbing to the top of the mountain, taking credit for it. Because it's I, not I, about that. I remember when I was in my 30s, 
and I was just trying to figure out how to be a leader, mostly with men in my organization. And you would think like, oh, a kind of crunchy granola, you know, holistic learning center. It's, no, it was the same thing, the same dudes and me trying to learn that language as fast as I could, spreadsheets and uh, meeting decorum. And I was just like, okay, I, I got to learn this. But if I exhibited anything, quote unquote, natural to me, like, let's say I cried as opposed to locker room put downs or anger, that was all acceptable. But if I was like, took my time or wanted to ask questions or got emotional, that was no, no, no. And I began to feel it all being just beaten out of me, my parts of myself that I wanted to bring along in the power ride. Exactly. Because otherwise, right, that whole notion of toughening your skin yeah. and being tough and kind of putting that, that game face, but then that's just it. It's a game. And this isn't a game. Right. And it really requires that depth of inner reflection, which is something that I think that COVID-19 is perhaps giving people the opportunity whether they want to, whether they go willingly or not, mm. there's so much more time uh, to sit with oneself and sort of figure out, you know, what are my next steps? How am I going to mm -hmm. center myself? How am I going to get myself able to move forward? So with that, what do you think are some of the, some of the attributes that women, to your point, you, t you talked about some of your, your natural inclinations. Mm -hmm. What are some of those innate talents and skills and uh, natural inclinations that you think will help um, women best prepare them for being the leaders that I think the world is is craving right now. Mm -hmm. Well, so what does it mean to tend and befriend as opposed to fight or flight? And to me, it's about... Um, so many of the words are just catchphrases, but it's all we've got. This capacity to be vulnerable, mm -hmm. to um, when feelings of, of, let's say, grief, like, let's say you look at the world right now, you look at climate change, you look at a picture of, of a polar bear floating away on an iceberg, and your heart is broken. I would say women bringing our broken hearts into our leadership and believing them and believing our grief that children are in cages and not buying into the story that that's hysteria, that women's emotions cloud our judgment. No, women's emotions inform our judgment. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the death of emotional intelligence that has allowed us to do what we've done and get to the precipice we're at on so many fronts of human life now. So to look at a forest fire and to feel the absolute pain of what that means and to say, that's my strength. Yes, mm -hmm. hooray for the first responders who are putting it out, yes. But I am a first responder because I have been feeling it for decades, and I'm going to be a Cassandra 
and call out, if we do that, this happens. I call it being a first, first responder. If we actually responded from our deep emotions and were believed and believed ourselves that this is valid, we wouldn't need as many first responders because the shit wouldn't happen. <laughs> That's true. You'd be able to sort of um, head it off at the pass. So we all know that there are parts of ourselves that we're proud of and parts that we're not so proud of. So, which is something that you refer to as shadow work. I'm, I'm familiar with shadow work just because I've um, done some classes and done some readings with, of, of the late Debbie Ford. And um, who, amazing, amazing. Um, and for listeners, please, you know, take a second to, to Google. She's done some dramatic work. But would you mind sharing a little bit about the, your mm -hmm. thoughts about shadow work and what that really means? Yeah. Um, what, what, what Debbie meant, and she taught at Omega many, many times, mm. and what, what C.G. Jung, the, the Swiss psychologist who broke with Freud, what he meant by shadow work is um, the ability to sit tight and look at the parts of yourself that you don't want to look at. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to blame other people than to sit and say, well, well, how am I contributing to this? And I think we all know this, and that's why I use very uncomfortable, unseemly examples from my own life in the book. You know, people often say, why do you why do you reveal so much about yourself? In the Why book? do you I'm go like, there? I'm like, the book made me do it. Because if you start writing about the shadow, people want to know, well, how about in your own life? So I write about quite a few, but here's one that maybe some women will relate to. So many of us say we want the men in our life to be more sensitive, less in the man box of patriarchy. We want them to be vulnerable. We want them to show their weakness. Don't always mansplain. Show who you, who you really are. But I've watched in my own marriage sometimes when my husband starts acting weak, soft, I don't like it. I'm still caught in the, please be my caveman hero. Please don't, I, I need you. So it's a mixed message I'm giving him and I watch it in my sons who are married now. They wanna be the good, warm-hearted, open, vulnerable man, but the old expectations are still there. So if I can own that in myself, I am doing just as important work as claiming my voice and my space um, in the office. If I can see how I'm still colluding with those old stories and try very hard, it's, they don't die easy because they live in our bodies. But if I can be honest with my husband and say, oh man, I did that yesterday. I, I, I just am aware of what I did yesterday with you. And I'm really sorry. I can't promise I'm never going to do it again, but I'm aware of it. And would you call it out? Would you be in dialogue about it with me? Because I don't want to keep doing it, but I'm stuck there just like you're stuck in your places. So that's what shadow work is. And I think it's very hard and very courageous. And, um, you know, that's what psychotherapy is all about and mm -hmm. different meditative uh, exercises and the kind of work you did with Debbie Ford on the shadow. Um, 
it's very difficult and brave work. Agreed. And I think it's interesting because you're right. When there is that role reversal, we get infuriated, both, you know, with our partners and, and with ourselves. Um, that's really helpful. So let, let's dig a little bit deeper in, into the, the male piece of the equation. Um, so, and, you know, essentially you're kind of, and what of men, right? So you write in the chapter called In Praise of Fathers, I actually believe that full-hearted fatherhood might save the world. What does that mean? What does that look like, the phrase full-hearted, and, and how so? Hmm. Well, um, Gloria Steinem says there won't be equality out of the house until there's equality in the house. And um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I was reading her, her quotes recently, and she had a quote just like that and was praising her husband for being the main father, the main parent for a while that allowed her to do what she did. And in my own life, um, in my second marriage, when I met my husband, um, he was a single father. He was the main parent of his child. And he was a lawyer and an athlete and kind of a golden boy and very much a type A Texas boy. And he said that having to be so intimate with a child, the relentlessness of taking care of a child, of having to put aside your own dreams over and over to take care of this little tyrant and to have to be in the mess of caring for someone and to it, he, it just tore open the architecture of his male defenses. And he, he credits it with totally changing who he was, not just as a parent, but as a human being. It was, it was the crucible in which he was able to get out of, as Tony Porter calls it, the man box. Not fully. None of us can fully change our stripes, but... Um, and in a way, that's really what attracted to me when I met him, attracted me to him when I met him, that there was this element of, of transformation he had chosen. Mm -hmm. And I have watched my own sons. I have three sons. They're all parents now. And I have watched not only their choice to be hands-on fathers and 50% and responsible for what's going on in in the house but their wives expect it it's not like thank you for babysitting or could you watch the kids no they yeah. actually it's a given and i see that deeply changing who men and women are together and independently mm -hmm. and if what we want is a culture of care where we care for the elders and we care for the children and we value education and um, healthcare and all the things that have been seen as sort of the women's women's issues. Mm -hmm. You're no longer, the only way they won't be women's issues anymore is if men start caring about them as much. And I see parenthood, you don't have to be a parent to make have that transformation as a man, but I see parenthood as, as a, a real way that things are changing. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I cited that in a recent <clears throat> interview that I was just a part of, and I was talking about very similarly 
the fact that with, and this was more with, frankly, you know, gender and racial equity, but once more, more men watch their daughters or their wives or their sisters or their aunts experience the inequity and wake up, it will, I believe it's begun to shake them up a bit and really awaken them. And so then they, they have to be Cassandra's. Correct. And until they are Cassandra's, we won't, we won't have the change we want. I completely, completely agree. So, you know, you quoted, and I loved this quote because it's really stuck with me. I mean, I've thought about it for the last two weeks. It's, it's the Toni Morrison quote. Mm -hmm. um, As you enter positions of trust and power, dream a little before you think. What, I know you share what you think that means. I will, but what, why did it stick with you? I'm trying to think. I, I'm really, it literally went down into my own um, gut. And I think it has to go back to listening to my intuition and my heart mm -hmm. and my reimagination of what it can look like. And what, as you had asked, what, what, what am I going to use my power for? Mm -hmm. right? How am I going to be generous in spirit? How am I going to come forward with what I call beginner's mind and yet a master's heart? Lovely. Which means that we're, right? Not tend and befriend. And um, I think maybe that was it because it, I felt like it kind of gave me permission <laughs> or a right. rallying cry to, to do it, to go yeah. ahead and do that. But I mean, I'm even like right now I'm all, <laughs> well, Tony Morrison will do that to you. <laughs> Tony Morrison is the exemplar to me of someone who dreamed before she thought. And what that means to me is our minds are so stamped with the old stories. They tell us, you can't do that. You know why? Because that's just not the way it's done. That's not the way it's done. But if we sink a little lower into our dreams, and by dreams, I think she meant your visions, mm -hmm. your Agreed. wild ideas, the ideas and ideals and values that have been labeled, you know, fanciful flights of fancy by women. You know, like I've always wondered why bookstores have whole areas of women's literature as if gender is a genre <laughs> a, a, as if as if like you know a book about relationships relationships is some sort of like crime against literature like you can have relationships about uh, books about war but relationships so Toni Morrison was saying be done with that like dream dream as big as you want feed your dreams and if your mind comes in with but they'll think but that's not important that's not as important as just feed your dreams and quiet your mind and see what happens see what happens if every day you believe your dreams a little bit i love that because it i've been using this this a similar sentiment that comes from the velveteen rabbit or excuse me, the, the Little Prince. It's the Little oh, Prince. The little it's, prince, yeah. Yes, where, you know, the, the heart sees what the eyes miss. And I think really at the core, that's what a lot of that is. And I also will say, and I challenge everyone listening, you know, these are unprecedented times. 
So they are going to call and require unprecedented acts, the kinds that make us a little queasy or a little scared. But just remember, there's a very thin line between fear and excitement. And I think if we allow ourselves to do, as Tony suggests, dream a little bit, we might then find a little greater courage deep yeah, within. Absolutely. I certainly think. So now we're kind of moving into sort of the, the last segment of the book. Um, will you explain a little bit about innervism? Yeah, I made that word up, innervism, because um, we all know what activism is. And I've been an activist since I was a freshman at Barnard College in New York City during the anti-war and civil rights marches. And I've had an activist mother and activism is in my blood. And, um, but at the same time, I've also been a very introspective person mm -hmm. and someone who has leaned heavily on things like mindfulness meditation and prayer and all sorts of spiritual practices. And I've always tried to marry those two parts of myself, the activist part. And so I just decided to lump all of that other stuff into what I call innervism, the innervist part of me. And I, 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 I did that because I feel it's an unnatural separation between wanting to work and fight for the good of the world and wanting to clean up my own bullshit and my own <laughs> fear. I, I, I think it's, it's an un, unnatural separation that they have mm -hmm. to go together. And I, I, I've always felt that, but I really learned it. Um, by watching some of the Omega over the years has offered for free um, week-long immersions on our beautiful country campus with workshops and teachers in yoga and good food to activist groups. We've said, mm -hmm. bring your groups here, whether you're an environmental group or a women's group or a Black Lives Matter group or any kind of social justice. We've we've allowed them to come and use our campus and facilities for free mm -hmm. That's because, and I noticed when we started doing this like 20 years ago, you know, we'd bring a group that was all about peace and they were like really angry people, like really angry people or social justice people who had terrible relationships within the organization or women's groups who were just mimicking male power dynamics. And I thought, this, this isn't going to work. You know, this is like, you know, the opposite of what Gandhi said, be the change you want exactly. to see in the world. So is there some way for us to do the change and be the change at the same time? You can't wait until you are completely, um, you know, walking the talk because we're works in progress. We're mm -hmm. always going to have our rough edges. But we can do the work together. You know, people who only work on themselves through psychotherapy or meditation run the risk of just detaching from a world that is on fire. But people who only are putting out the fire actually are often creating more fires. Mm -hmm. So to me, innervism is a way to calm oneself, to keep one's heart open and soft to 
forgive ourselves. We're so hard on ourselves, and when we're so unforgiving of ourselves, it's very hard to forgive others. Um, to to love ourselves. To me, activism is love of the world. Innervism is love of the self, and healing the self so that we can be better agents of change. Which is terrific because in this age of servant leadership, it's definitely an inside out job. Yeah. It just, it really is. So with that, your little meditation, do no harm, but take no shit. Walk us through a little bit or describe it for folks, because um, if we had a little more time, I would lead us through it, but, but, We've had such a great engaging conversation. I think it'll be more effective and impactful if you actually. And, and I think on my website, I have a video of me leading it mm -hmm. and great. a written out thing. So if you like what I'm saying, you could go to it. Um, this is a meditation that's, that's steeped in, in real Buddhist um, meditation instructions, but I put my own spin on it. When I, my sister was very ill and I was her bone marrow donor, and we went through this whole process together of trying to clean up our relationships so that maybe the bone marrow transplant would work better. Um, I, she was a nurse practitioner and she lived for a year after the transplant and she died sadly. I'm sorry. But when I was going through her belongings, I noticed uh, this needle point she had made that said, do no harm which is the oath that all medical professionals take the um what's his names uh the uh, horocratic yeah yeah the oath. <laughs> hippocratic the hippocratic, hippocratic the <laughs> so the hippocratic oath, do no harm but she had a line under it that said but take no shit and as a nurse she had a lot of experience taking a lot of shit because often nurses just take a lot of shit. So I loved this idea of do no harm, but take no shit. And I turned it into a meditation because in meditation, what you try to do is have a very straight back, mm -hmm. very strong boundaries, almost as if you're noble and you're sitting on a horse and you're riding through your land and it's like, I belong here. I take mm -hmm. my seat. I have a straight back. I am a noble, gallant being. Mm -hmm. That's the take no shit. And if, and if we develop that, we can then soften our front and do no harm to ourselves and to others. And that's the power of meditation. It's because I have a strong seat, I can have a soft heart. I can stop making the other wrong all the time. I can tend and befriend. But if all we do is that, we lose ourselves. Our boundaries are invaded. So it's a meditation I have done year after year, this idea of strong back and soft front. Love that. Yeah. I love that. So... I want to close with um, the quote that you had from Gerda Lerner. We now know that man is not the measure of that which is human, but men and women are. This insight will transform consciousness as decisively as Copernicus's discovery that the earth is not the center of the universe. How might that insight of the worthiness of women transform our world as we move forward, especially in this 
extraordinary times that we find ourselves of this evolutionary change. Well, Gerda Lerner, my favorite historian, please read her books. I don't know why everyone isn't in high school reading her books, but Gerda Lerner equated uh, changing the story about women and men being equal to the story of Copernicus and Galileo, who against the scientific, science and church of their time said, no, the earth is not the center of our universe. It's just one little part with other parts revolving around the sun. Now, Galileo was jailed. He was under house arrest for his entire life. And it took 300 years after he died for the church to um, clear his name. Stories die hard. And the story that women are second born and first to sin, when we get rid of that story, it will be a change as big as the change that Copernicus and Galileo brought into the scientific world because we will value what women know and hold in ourselves as much as men. Oh my gosh. Well, I so look forward to that day and I believe it is brewing. And I know it's that brewing. it is brewing and now we need to have it come up to a full boil. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to say, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm going to urge everyone to go, you know, Cassandra Speaks, is, it's available. It's, it came out September 15th. It's available on Amazon. Um, it's, you've got audible copies of it as well. It's, I believe it will become um, certainly required reading in anyone who is taking feminist studies, which is just, why are we even separating it like that? It should just be a part to your earlier conversation of everything moving forward. It's gonna be a really important book of our time. And I can't think of a more auspicious era to be entering into with this, where we can finally really, you know, rise into ourselves and, and move forward. So thank you so much. Um, and with that, we look forward to speaking to everyone during our next World Changing Women podcast. I'm Kate Byrne, president of SOCAP Global, thanking you until our paths cross again. Take care. <music>